And I want to thank all of you for having me here today, having us here today. Uh, such a blessing to be here, and I think it's actually really special for me. There's something super special to me about being in, in, a, in, a, in an old church like this. Like there's something beautiful about worshiping surrounded by stained glass and these wonderful images. Uh, because if you didn't know, at Lyft Church, the church where, I, where I'm currently pastoring, we, t- we generally meet in the bar. Uh, we meet in the, and it's wonderful, we meet in Isaac's Bar and Grill on campus at Brock University, and there's something really neat and, uh, and unique about being in that central place of campus, uh, and being able to be at that cultural center and, and being able to proclaim Jesus in that place and, and to celebrate and to worship there, but, um, there's something special to me about being here today. So thank you for welcoming me here and into this space and uh, for trusting me, Pastor Steve, to uh, to share. I don't think you've ever heard me preach before. So yeah, you've, they've stopped by Lyft a couple of times, which has been wonderful, but every time I've had a week off. So um, good luck to me, I guess. <laughs> um, I just want to take just a quick moment. I know there's going to be lots of questions about who Lyft is and what Lyft is, and so I thought I'd address that at the beginning, and then we'll get back to this this text, this story of the golden calf that you may or may not be familiar with. But uh, but Lyft is a church. We're actually a network of churches, and we plant churches on college and university campuses, and they're missionally directed at the campus. But actually, the desire of our heart is not that they would be student churches or a student ministry, but that they would be fully flourishing intergenerational communities of churches that happen to gather on the campus knowing that we need to be present in that space if we hope to affect change in that space. And so we, we kind of do three primary things as a church. We, we gather on Sundays and we worship. Um, we also do this thing we call simple church, which is like, um, you know, our version of, of small groups, or I, I like to say maybe more like a missional community, because it's like a, a group of disciples, we gather together, we share time and proximity and vulnerability together, we, we do life together, um, as we seek to follow after Jesus and invite other people to do likewise, and they have this really missional direction to them. And then we, we desire also to serve our cities. Uh, and whether that's directly serving our campus, which we think of kind of as our city proper, as our little parish, or it's being able to come here on Saturdays. Uh, every other Saturday we get to come and, and hang out with uh, Amanda and, uh, and the team with Out of the Cold and help with serving meals and connecting. And uh, it's been such a blessing to be a part of that as well. So I have to thank you again for that. Um, so that's a little bit about us and who we are, and if you have more questions, uh, my wife Raven and I are going to be hanging out for a little bit afterwards, and uh, we're happy to, to chat and, uh, and to answer any, hopefully, answer any questions that you might have. Um, but, uh, but yeah, today we're exploring this passage from uh, Exodus chapter 32. And, uh, and maybe it's one that you're already familiar with, or maybe it's one that you, you hadn't heard before, and that's okay either way. Uh, maybe it's entirely new to you, but, but part of the reason that we're going to be diving into this particular text is, is because it's one that, that has been reformed in me in a new way. Uh, I think that it wasn't until, you know, maybe a couple of years ago that I, this story finally clicked for me. For so many years, I looked at it and just didn't really get it. 
And so I thought I'd invite you to join me on that journey today uh, that I've kind of walked through and see if you'd like to come along. Um, and so so let me first say uh, thank you to our reader for, for helping us uh, get back through that. I'm going to go ahead and just give a little bit of context, important context to the story. Then we're going to look back at some key points together before going and revisiting some specific verses that are going to help us understand the importance and the value of this passage. So a little bit of context. The people of Israel have been delivered out of Egypt. And it was this crazy and big, miraculous event, right? They, they, they walked on dry land through the middle of the Red Sea as God parted it. And they, and they, they now have been traveling through the desert for some time and, and they've been following around this pillar of cloud during the day and this pillar of fire during the night. And they see God working in amazing ways every day. He is present. He is imminent in their day to day. And now they found their way to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up on the mountain to talk with God and to receive the law. And while they're waiting for Moses to come down, the people seemingly get bored. And they go to Aaron, who's kind of the second in command. And, uh, and they compel him to make an image. And Aaron says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Give me our gold. Let's go. And so they fashion this image of a golden calf. And then they say, tomorrow, let us have a feast to our God who delivered us out of Egypt. And up on Mount Sinai, Moses is with God, and God gets very upset and angry. He's upset by the actions of the Israelite people. And after some discussion... Moses gets sent down and he's carrying with him the law. And it's at this moment that we discover that Moses is like the most evil guy in the whole Bible, right? Because he breaks all Ten Commandments at the same time. That one was specifically for Pastor Steve. Uh, (laughs) But he smashes, he sees it and he gets upset. He smashes the tablets. He yells at them and Aaron tries to lay the blame on the people. The Israelites suffer some consequences from their actions and God also brings about the creation of the Levites as the priesthood. And it was until quite recently that every time I read this story, you know, reading through Exodus or hearing about it or talking about it, I got to the part where the Israelites decide to make this image and I couldn't help but think, how dumb can these people be? Is anyone else with me on that? Did anyone else read that story and they're like, what are they doing? Like, oh my goodness, they've, they're seeing God working every day. They've seen these amazing, miraculous things. And then they go, let's make a statue out of gold and worship it. They just witness the parting of their Red Sea. They get magic food from heaven every day to help feed them. They follow a pillar of cloud around. At, at night, it's a pillar of fire. There, there is this, there is This God who is imminent right there in front of them doing amazing things. And they decide, let's make an image of a golden calf and worship that instead. Has anyone else been flabbergasted by that story or is that just me? Yeah, okay, a few people. Thank you, the honest people out there. I appreciate it. But let's go back and let's look specifically at verse 5. Because something happens there that doesn't quite fit the narrative that perhaps we're used to. See, in verse 5 it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. 
And if you notice it up on the screen there in the NIV, the word LORD is in all capitals. And that's translator code for if we go and look in the Hebrew, the word there is Yehovah. Let's go. Tomorrow there will be a festival to Jehovah. To the one true God. To the real one, not, not to some statue. And, and as I've kind of read this passage and discovered this and started to read some scholarly writing on this, it seems to me like what the Israelite people were doing was not trying to make a new God for themselves to worship. Instead, they were trying to use this golden calf as a way to help them worship the one true God. A little bit different than maybe you're used to, or what you've thought before. But if we can agree that they're trying to worship the one true God, then where have they gone wrong? What part of their actions drove God to be so upset that he threatened to destroy them to Moses? Was God just saying, guys, guys, that is not what I look like at all. Well, if I'm being honest, I think that there were two fundamental errors that were made by the Israelite people in this passage that led to God's very strong and angry response to their particular actions in making this golden calf to help them try to worship him. The first of these two actions is that the Israelite people in this action of making the golden calf have neglected what God told them about themselves. Let me say that again. They have neglected what God has told them about themselves. The second mistake that they made, we're going to unpack each of these in a moment. The second mistake that they made is that they have neglected what God has told them about himself. They neglected what God told them about themselves and they've neglected what God told them about himself. So let's unpack each of these a little bit. So so they neglected what God told them about themselves. You see, in the ancient Near East, there was this, this thing that kings did. See, kings would create statues of themselves. And they would take them and they would place them out in the land that they ruled over. Wherever they reigned, they would take these statues of themselves and they would put them there. And these statues, these images of themselves, would serve as a symbol of their rule and of their authority within that land. So if we go back together, if we go back together and we read the story of creation, and specifically we look at the story of the creation of humanity that these people would be familiar with. Moses alone wrote it down, right? They would know this story. What does it say? What does it say that God does that tells us about who we are? Well, in Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.7, we get the same message. That humans were created as those who bear the image of God. 1.27 says, in his image he created them, male and female he created them. And when the Israelites read that, in their context, knowing about this tradition of kings, it would click in their head that their identity as ones who bear the image of God, that they understood that, that 
That being created as God's image meant that they are to represent the rule and reign of their God to all of creation. Wherever they go, they are the image of God, showing all who are around that God rules and reigns. Not only that, but they're filled with his spirit. And they should be acting to take care or to to rule over or to steward or to subdue all of creation. We read that in in Genesis 1.28. And with that knowledge, what did the people of Israel do? Well, they made an image of a calf to bow down and worship to. They subordinated themselves, the image of the Creator, to the creation. They substituted created things with the Creator. The the things that God gave them authority over, they've put into the position of God. Not only that, but they were shirking their own duty, right? They are the image bearers of God. And I think that this is a big part of why God responds so drastically to their actions. He's looking down at them, seeing them trying to create something in his image. And he's just like, no, 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 no. I already made my image. It's you. I created you. You are the mirror through which people can see my reflection. The Israelites got it all wrong. They forgot who they were. They forgot who God had told them that they were. They forgot that they mustn't bow to created things because they bear the image of the creator of all things. And I think that we can fall prey to this as well. So as we look at our own lives and and think about the things that maybe we've begun to bow down to, the things that we've handed authority over to, It's important that we as Christians remember who we are. That we as Christians remember who we were made to be. When we encounter any idols in our lives. Because without that knowledge of who we are, I don't think it would be possible for us to really move past any of those idols that we do carry. The second mistake that the Israelite people made was they neglected what God has told them about himself. And I kind of joked earlier that maybe God was upset because he was saying, that's not what I look like. But I think in a way, it's true. Not because of the previous conversation about how God had already created an image of himself, but also because the image that the Israelites created does not accurately represent who God is. God has revealed himself to the people of Israel and to us consistently throughout his word. And whether it was through telling Moses, I am who I am, or it was by parting the Red Sea, he has shown them who he is and what his character is. The Israelites neglected this full revelation of his character for a much smaller picture of who he is. J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, writes about this. And he, he describes it this way. He says, to illustrate, 
Aaron made a golden calf, that is a bull image. And it was meant as a visible symbol of Jehovah, the mighty God who had brought Israel out of Egypt. No doubt the image was thought to honor him as being fitting symbol of his strength. But it's not hard to see that such a symbol, in fact, insults him. For what idea of his moral character, what idea of his righteousness, of his goodness and patience could one gather from looking at a statue of him as a bull? Thus, Aaron's image hid Jehovah's glory. One way to put it would be this. The Israelites, in that moment, when they make that golden calf, they are confessing a God who is imminent. They are confessing the God who delivered them out of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea, the power that they get to see. But God's revelation about himself to his people is bigger than that. God is not only a God who is imminent, but he's also a transcendent God. He is the I Am. He is the one who has existed before time even began. And if we look at this from our own perspective, I think we often, at least I, have a tendency to go in the opposite direction. I can be really concerned about worshiping God who is transcendent, right? The I am, the, you know, he's got, he's so big and vast and mighty up there, right? He's got all of the omnis, right? He's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. But sometimes, in my own life, I've had a tendency to neglect the other side of the coin in my worship of God. I've had a tendency to neglect the God who was imminent. And in doing that, I'm making the same mistake that the Israelites made. I forgot about the God who is continually revealing himself to me every day. When I was in my first year of seminary, I was placed in a, in a Baptist church in Burlington. And, uh, and as a part of my placement, I started a young adults group. They didn't have one. And we met every week as a group and did some Bible study and we talked about life. But every single week, without fail, the one thing that we always did was we started our time together with one question. And it was a really simple question. It was, what has God been doing in your life in the last week? And at first, it was really difficult for people to answer. It was hard to think about what God had been doing, how he'd been moving, because they had their mind set on the transcendent God. But over time, as we started to intentionally look, as we started to intentionally discuss, we began finding the things in our day-to-day where God was moving and working and revealing himself to us. And when we met together and we answered that question, what we were doing was we were confessing the God who was imminent and active in our lives now. And then we dove into scripture and learned about the God who was transcendent. And we held those two ideas together. And it created a culture of church that I believe was, was healthy and had a healthy idea of who God is. So what was it that the Israelites did wrong? They forgot who they were. 
And they forgot who God was when it came to their worship. They reduced him down to just his power. They submitted themselves to the created things rather than to the creator. They hid his glory. I hope, I hope that we can go about our weeks remembering who God is and who we are. Worshiping and meditating on the God who created all things, who sustains all things, the God who parted the Red Sea and raised the dead, the God who, who also gives you the strength to love that hard-to-love person at work, the God who, who was your hope in that time of darkness, the God who revealed himself to you in his word and in creation, the God who is continuing to reveal himself to you each and every day. The God who came and dwelt among us. Who gave his life for us. And as we move to remember him now, in this practice of communion, let us reflect on the God who revealed himself to us through Jesus. Who Hebrews 1.3 says is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that we can come together and worship you. That we can, that we can celebrate how great you are, how vast you are, how mighty you are, and also the reality that you care about us as individuals in our lives, in our day to day. God, I pray that we would be able to hold those things together. In the, in the person of Jesus that you've given us as an example of your glory. Lord, we thank you for, for the opportunity to come and to worship you today. Lord, I pray that you would bless the remainder of the time that we have together and you would bless our weeks as we go from here. In Jesus' name, amen.